This is Steve Goodrich, known on the trail as Bird Shooter, and this is N2 Backpacking, a podcast for both hikers and backpackers. Hey backpackers, Bird Shooter here. And tonight on the podcast, I speak with Paul Barak to talk about his 750 mile and 42 day trip on the Shikoku pilgrimage in Japan. In the show, Paul shares the history of this religious Buddhist route. He talks about hiking in the traditional pilgrim clothing and shares some of the challenges that he faced, including heat, hunger, injuries, and infections. You can check out Paul's book, Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, for all the details, or listen to this interesting discussion about a little-known through-hike and religious journey on a remote island in Japan. Here's episode 84. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is Bird Shooter. I'd like to welcome Paul Barak to the show. He is the writer and author of Fighting Monks in Burning Mountains, which details his 750-mile backpacking trip on the Shikoku pilgrimage in the mountains of Japan. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Glad, glad to be on. Yeah. So uh, you, you live in Seattle, I understand. Is, is that correct? Did you grow up in Washington? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, born and raised in Seattle. Uh, now live 45 minutes south in a port city called Tacoma. Oh, yeah. I've been to Tacoma, so I know Tacoma well. I wanted to ask you, too, I saw in your bio you uh, did some uh, stand-up comic uh, routines there. Is that is that still in the works? Uh, can you give us just a little background on that? Um, yeah, I started stand-up. I did stand-up comedy for about five years. Started, uh, I think, around 2011, 2012, and uh, quit in 2016. Okay. Um, yeah, just had a uh, had a personal tragedy happen, and things weren't funny for a while, so stopped doing it. I know what you're saying. I read it in your book, and we're going to talk about that coming up. So, uh, listeners, uh, be ready. We're going to dive into that a little. Man, uh, I, I wish that I wish that was actually the tragedy that stopped me, but uh, oh. there was a worse one. Oh, okay. I'll give you a chance to to delve into that if you wish later. Sure. Um, so I just want to put out there too uh, some of the earlier episodes. I interviewed Squatch, who uh, did some long distance hiking in the United States and made some uh, pretty good videos. He was also a stand up comic, so there must be a reoccurring theme here, uh, Paul. That's that's all I can guess. Interesting. Uh, what was Squatch's uh, What was Squatch's real name? Uh, Scott Harriet is his real name, and he's got some uh, pretty good uh, videos out there on the AT Pacific Crest Trail and also the Continental Divide. So uh, really, really, f- he's funny. Obviously, he's a stand-up comic would be. Yeah. So uh, if you if you want to go back in time, those podcasts are in the uh, in the uh, library here. So they're they're out there if you're curious. I'm oh, great. I'll check them out. Yeah, but some great hiking and backpacking in Washington. Um, did you do a lot of hiking and, and training, really, before you went to uh, to do this pilgrimage in Japan? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. I did, uh, I did no training. Really? Okay. Yeah, did, I went in uh, totally unprepared. Did you pay for that? Yes. Ugh. Although, um, to be honest, like, 
it's not as if I went from, you know, sitting on the couch to uh, going on this pilgrimage. I was a very active uh, bicyclist. I was a runner. I'd run a marathon before. Um, I was uh, practicing a very hard style of martial art. But as your listeners know, and as you know, there is a gulf between being in athletic shape, being in hiking shape, and being in through hiking shape. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's totally different muscles. And when I finished the Appalachian Trail, and uh, it was quite a while ago, 94, but um, I went on a run, three-mile run, when I got off the trail, like maybe a day or two later. And I couldn't believe it. I was in a lot of pain. I mean, it's the you're just working totally different muscles, you know? Yeah, I had that same thing coming off the Pacific Crest Trail. Like, it's it's impossible. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I what happened? I'm not even carrying a 40-pound pack, and I can't, like, I can't, it feels like you can't, your legs can't lift you off the ground. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Now, I know you went on to do the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide, um, but was the Shikoku pilgrimage, it was your first long-distance hike, is that correct? Yes, I had not even done a real overnight hike before as an adult. Okay. And since then, you've gone on to do the Pacific Crest Trail, also the uh, Colorado Trail. Um, have you done any other long-distance hikes that uh, I'm not aware of? Um, I mean, I've done shorter long-distance. You know, I've done the uh, the Wonderland Trail around Mount Rainier. Oh, I've yeah. done the uh, Timberline Trail around Mount Hood, the Lewitt Trail around Mount St. Helens, and, uh, you know, the um, Enchantments Okay. As a one day through hike, but as far as uh, multi day, uh, now the uh, Colorado Trail was the last one. Okay, those are some really cool trails. I was just on the Colorado Trail in September, actually, and uh, really, really enjoyed it. It's very cool. Um, yeah, the the colors of those mountains are just stunning. Yeah, yeah. You know? That's so- that's really something I think that uh, the Rockies have that the. Uh, the ranges of the West Coast don't is those just ancient layers of earth. Yeah, yeah. That go from like red to yellow to black. So when you finished the Shikoku pilgrimage, I mean, it sounds like you didn't just stop. I mean, obviously it had an impact on you and you kept uh, kept going. So that that's pretty exciting. And you also biked across the United States. Is that what I understand? Uh-huh, yep. Yeah, you've had a pretty good uh, 10 years there. <laughs> it's been great. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. For everything except my bank account. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know, you know, you don't, you don't get into long-distance backpacking to make money, that's for sure. No. Nope. You collect experiences, not uh, cash. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm always hoping to find that, like, buried treasure on a trail, though, you know? No, nah, you never know. It was out there. <laughs> it got found, right? That guy that hit all that money in uh, the Rockies? That money finally yeah. got found, right? Yeah, congratulations to whoever found that. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the guy that did it, but that that's a, that, that's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, before we tear into the Shikoku pilgrimage specifically, I'm just curious to ask you, um, how, how was it like you thought it would be and how was it completely different? I mean, I think the only, it was the way I thought it would be in that it was a walking an ancient pilgrimage in a foreign land, you know, wearing the traditional sedge hat wearing the vest when the carrying the walking staff praying at temples you know ancient right like walking by rice fields that had been there forever um and just immersing myself in a completely new culture uh 
as far as how it was different than I expected, literally everything else that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and a lot happened. A lot happened, right? We're going to talk about that. Yeah. So you teed me up perfectly, I guess. Let, let's talk about the pilgrimage for a minute because uh, I'm, I'm certain that most people in the United States really don't know much about it. Um, do you want to tell us why the route exists? Uh, yeah, and uh, if people in the United States are at all, you know, like, oh, man, I didn't know this pilgrimage existed. Uh, a lot of people in Japan don't know it exists either. Like, it is said that more Japanese people have been to uh, Paris than have been to Shikoku Island. Wow, I didn't see that. And Shikoku's one of the main four. Huh, okay. Um, like, there wasn't even a bridge built to Shikoku Island until the 1980s. And uh, the when I... When I went out there, um, I was staying with uh, two friends uh, who were a Japanese couple who I knew from doing karate back in Seattle. They moved back home to Japan. And when I got there, um, the, I was, they were asking, like, um, so tell us again how you heard about this because we've been telling our friends that you're going to do this hike and they <laughs> haven't heard of it. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Um, but the, the Shikoku pilgrimage is, um, about 12, 1300 year old pilgrimage, uh, based on Shikoku Island, obviously that circles the Island about 750 miles. And you visit these 88 Shingon Buddhist temples that are dotting the rim. Uh, if you want to think of, if you need a, if you'd like a visual, uh, Shikoku Island kind of looks like a, a lion animal cracker that got soggy and it's got mountains running east to west across it. So, uh, but the pilgrimage itself is kind of a walking tour of the many feats of this, uh, uh, ninth century, uh, Buddhist priest and founder of Shingon Buddhism named Kukai. Uh, who's also known as Kobodaishi, which means the great Dharma teacher. Uh, he was this uh, aristocratic noble who never really bought into it, dropped out of Confucian College, and wandered Shikoku Island for a while as a wandering ascetic. Uh, and then on Cape Moroto, he sat in a cave, staring out at where the sea and the sky meet, Ku and Kai, and by staring out on that horizon and meditating, he achieved enlightenment. After that, he became an ambassador to China, uh, went over, received more esoteric Buddhist teachings to further his education and enlightenment, came back and met to Shikoku and then did so many different things. Like he uh, helped, he was a civic engineer and built levees. He founded temples but he, and you know, really existed in history. Like some, one of the levees he built is still on Shikoku Island, but he also, you know, chased demons out of temples and fought dragons and, you know, jumped off the side of a cliff and Sakyamuni Buddha uh, swept up and grabbed him and put him back as a child. So, you know, he's, he's legend and historical figure. And so the walking tour is, uh, basically visiting a lot of the temples he founded and sort of continuing this trail. So, so I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it's basically a religious tour, correct? Like the Camino de Santiago in, uh, in Spain? 
Yeah, it's a it's a religious tour um, of Shingon Buddhism, which is a sect of Buddhism that believes that enlightenment can be achieved in one lifetime. Okay. Um, and at each temple, you say uh, seven set prayers, uh, one of which being the Heart Sutra. And is is Buddhism the predominant religion in Japan? Uh, it's Buddhism and Shinto. Okay, gotcha. Uh, Shinto is sort of a polytheistic religion. Um, so if you ever watch like Princess Mononoke, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the sp- a lot of the spirits in Princess Mononoke uh, are like Shinto. Um, you know, it's the idea that the grass has a spirit and the uh, uh, you know a house has a spirit, and so you're praying to the spirit of those things. Whereas Buddhism is, you know, the idea that we're all one. Yeah, you know, uh, Paul, what's interesting is, for some reason, I get a lot of downloads out of Japan. I mean, more than some of the uh, English-speaking countries, actually, surprisingly. Interesting. Um, Hello. I think they're like third or fourth in my downloads, and, and probably ahead of, like, maybe New Zealand or Australia. So, um, I, I, you know, this this will definitely, pro- well, it'll probably be interesting to um, whoever those folks are that are downloading yeah. the uh, the the podcast from Japan, but I understand there's two separate loops. Do I have that right? Um, yeah. So there's the Shikoku pilgrimage, and I actually had to look this up. There is another uh, nature hike on Shikoku Island that I was unaware of, and that one goes through more of the, I guess, national parks on Shikoku, but still visits some of the temples. Um. And uh, by the way, to your Japanese listeners, I'm sure I'm getting some things wrong, and I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> so I can hear you yelling into your headphones at some points. Yeah, we'll cut you some slack. You did hike 720 miles on their uh, one of their islands, so uh, it, yeah. you know. Um, so now, in terms of national park lands, that was a question I had for you. The route that you took did you um, did you go through a lot of park lands, or was it mostly just public and? Uh, Kind of. You know, the, the uh, 90% of the Shikoku pilgrimage is on, like, roads and highways. Like, it's 90% of concrete. Okay. So when I was going into the mountains, um, I, I'm i honestly not sure if I went through any national parks or not. I mean, I don't speak Japanese, so I couldn't really read the signs. Yeah, but, I, I got some questions for you about that coming up. Yeah, um, but as far as I know, um, I don't think it goes through any national parks. Now you flew into Tokyo, if I if I remember mm-hmm. from your book, and then you took a bus yep. to get down there. I think you had mentioned your karate friends from Seattle had um, had helped you. Um, so yeah, I mean, you think that most uh, the, the Japanese don't necessarily know about it because it was an island with no bridge for so long. Um, I think so. I think it's that Shikoku is just a it's Japan's smallest and most rural of the main islands, and so a lot of people just don't have a lot of reason to go there mm-hmm. um it's sort of historically been a land of like exiles you know like um if we have time i'll tell this really cool story from japanese history but uh basically you know if some member of the royal court or the royal family uh was an upstart or fell out of favor they just send him to shikoku hmm. okay because you know like you're not you, it's a place to just go. It's not really a place to, you know, visit. And, and tell us about the elevation there, just, you know, for somebody that may be interested in, in doing the hike. What are we talking? I mean, you're at sea level probably 
at some points, but you know, your highest point that you would, uh, the highest point is, uh, mountain Penji, which is, uh, the mountain of hovering clouds. And that is at, uh, 3,041 feet. So that's, that's the highest one. But if you're doing the pilgrimage in the normal direction, uh, like going temple one, two, three, uh, your first bit of trouble and the mountain and the, uh, elevation to look out for is burning mountain temple, which is <laughs> temple 12. I remember that from your book. We're going to talk about that. Cause it sounds like that was <laughs> a miserable experience for you. Um, yeah. Or, now you, miserable and life changing. Yeah. That sounds like it. Um, but it, what I got from the book was that you're going through towns, pretty frequently and you're seeing local people. Do, do I have that correct? Um, you're walking by towns. Yeah. Okay. Uh, going like through the streets. Um, generally I didn't go through a lot of towns. Uh, I mean, they're not, they're not like big towns, most of them. And so if you're going through a town, it's generally on the way to or out of a temple. And and, it's, uh, and they're marked, right? Like just like the Camino, you guys, you you have a, a marking or a blaze to follow. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So the um, <clears throat> so there's about like two or three uh, ways to tell your direction. The first one is that there are these um, stone bollards uh, with you know, Japanese writing on them, and also an arrow and like the temple number in English, which is very helpful. Um, and it'll give you an arrow pointing which direction on the road. Uh, there's also wooden ones. Some of them are very old, like over a hundred years old, some of them. And they're also giving you the direction. And then, uh, someone, probably the Shikoku tourism board has gone along and put stickers of cartoon Henro, uh, Henro or the Japanese pilgrims. And so if you just look for the stickers of little cartoon walking Henro with potato heads, uh, that'll also tell you which that you're going the right direction. You mentioned earlier that you don't speak or read Japanese. So how, nope. how hard was it for you to find your way? Incredibly hard. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I kind of went with the idea that, you know, most Japanese people speak English. Uh, and I, I think I thought that they spoke more English than they did. But what I realized later was I think most Japanese people speak about the same amount of English as an American does who took high school Spanish. Okay. Interesting. You know, like, like after I graduated high school, I could, you know, if a Spanish person came up to me, I could definitely tell them that I liked their shoes and ask if they bought their shoes at the shoe store. <laughs> Zapata. But I, yeah. But I, uh, I don't think I could help them find direction or a hospital or something. Given that, right, that you had a little bit of communication issues or you had the basics, but you still had some trail magic or some trail kindness that came came your way. Do you want to share your best experience? Sure. Um, for, so the trail magic in Japan, is uh, it's very interesting because as a Henro, you are traveling alongside uh, Kobodaishi on the trail, like the the uh, kanji on the front of your sedge hat says his name. The kanji running down the back of your white pilgrim's vest says two traveling as one. And the staff that you're carrying um, represents kukai. So when you 
finish up for the night and you go into your uh, ryokan or wherever you're sleeping, for me it was a tent, you're supposed to wipe the bottom of the staff and put it respectfully in a corner, like standing up or because you are traveling with Kukai. And so there's this tradition along the pilgrimage called Osetai, which is where uh, all of the locals give gifts to any walking pilgrim. Because since the pilgrims are traveling alongside Kukai on the trail, by giving an offering or a gift to the pilgrim, they're giving that same offering to Kukai, and in a way, joining you on the pilgrimage. Sounds like a good gig. People are yeah. going to give you stuff the whole way. What, what did the local people think about your hike? I mean, what, what, was, what was the typical reaction you got? I mean, it sounds like it was super supportive. It was super supportive, but a lot of double takes. Like, a, Because well, I don't know what it's like 10 years later, but when I was hiking it, only about a dozen Westerners did it every year. Hmm. And so, you know, there were a lot of people who'd come up and say, like, where are you from? And, you know, how did you hear about this? Not like I could give much of an answer. Uh, but the uh, like I'd be walking, I'd be walking over a bridge and people would like double take in their cars. And one night as I was walking up a, uh, a mountain trail, this kid ran out of his house and like grabbed my arm and pulled me into his yard <laughs> and then was like, like just, you know, motioning, like stay there, ran inside the house to get his brother just to come out and look at and pointed at me and like, look, really? Okay. Look, he's white. <laughs> and um, tall probably too, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the best Osetai I ever received was one night. Um, I was at a, I ran out of money. Um, not, I ran out of cash. I still had money in my account, but all of the, uh, all of the, uh, post offices where I could get more money were closed for the night and I was out of food and I couldn't buy anything more. And this family like invited me onto their tent for, or onto their, um, blanket because it was this like high school performance of taiko drumming. Hmm. And then afterwards, like I thought I was just going to have to, you know, camp out, basically starve for most of starve for most of the next day and then on Monday I could get money again. And instead they like took me into their home. <laughs> and awesome. you know, sat me at the dinner table and let, you know, rolled out a map for the night. And then the next day drove me over to get to another town to get money. And okay. that was yeah, I mean, people really open their hearts and their homes to you. That's legit trail magic. I mean, it's everywhere, right? In in all countries, mm-hmm. but uh, that, that's that's what's great about the through hike experience. Um, how did you find out about the uh, Shikoku Trail to begin with, or the pilgrimage, I should say? Um, well, basically, as I say in the book, it all comes back to ninjas. But um, I always, ever since I was young. Like I had this really big fascination with Japan uh, because originally, you know, 1990s cartoons, ninjas were everywhere. <laughs> and, then, and uh, you know, in college, um, just because of, of that interest, which had spread out at that point from, you know, like uh, from ninjas, which, you know, kind of didn't exist to Zen Buddhism and martial arts and uh, anime and, you know, just a real interest in Japan. I took a class on Japanese religion and culture, 
um, you know, because figured at least a week would be spent on ninjas, easy B. Um, but during that class, uh, we watched this video, this documentary on the Shikoku pilgrimage. And as I watched, you know, the narrator walking by these, you know, endless rice fields with his staff and meditating beneath waterfalls and praying at these ancient temples, I just had this kind of vision of myself there. And Paul, are you basically saying that you did the pilgrimage because you wanted to be a ninja warrior? Uh, I've done a lot of things because I wanted to be a ninja warrior, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Part of me was hoping uh, some old man would walk out of the woods one day and just be like, "You are now ready," and like hand me a samurai sword, and I'd be like, "I knew it." What, what was the Karate Kid <laughs> Sensei guy? What was his name? Uh, Mr. Miyagi. Yeah, you're looking for Miyagi to come busting out and uh, take you on, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, why not me? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Now, what what year did this happen again? Uh, this was 2010. 2010? It's been 10 years? It's been 10 years. I mean, I, uh, you know, and yeah, it's more just, uh, you know, how long ago that was. Uh, I didn't have a cell phone while I was doing it. I didn't have any electronics. I was totally, except for my camera and my voice recorder, I was totally analog. So when was your book published? Uh, my book was published in uh, 2014. Okay, so 2014. All right, so it's been out there for a few years. I got you. Okay, and like how many Westerners, if you had to guess, are doing it now? You think the word's kind of gotten out? Um, you know, there one of the changes that I saw was there's now a Facebook page devoted to it. So okay. I'm going to assume more Westerners are doing it uh, just because – there's a spread of it. There's a greater spread of information. You know, you can, you can map it easier. You can use a, you can use your phone to translate stuff. Uh-huh. So I think the degree of difficulty on the pilgrimage is a little lower, but I also could not, I can't imagine that it's super popular because I haven't heard much about it. Yeah. I'm guessing before you went, you didn't have really a chance to talk to anyone about it. Like what kind of preparation could you do to learn about it in advance? And, and, um, I mean, there, was there a guidebook? I mean, how did you learn about it back in 2010? I mean, the little bit that I learned was from uh wiki travel. Not sure if that's still a thing. Hmm. And, uh, this website by a Shikoku expert named David Turkington called uh Shikoku Henro trail. Um, that website's still operational and, uh, he's a very nice guy. If you email him, he will, you know, write back and give you any answers that he can to your questions. And, uh, on a personal note, I sent him a copy of my book and he reviewed it very positively, which to me, let me know that, uh, I think I got the pilgrimage, right? At least the description of it. Yeah. I mean, I got that, I got that sense from the book. I mean, I think you did it legit. Um, what, it took you 42 days. Do I have that right? Yep. 42 days. Okay. And then you go by, what is it? 82 temples. Is that correct? 88. 88. So the temple experience has got to be, that's got to be cool. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Cause the temple experience is pretty rad. Um, so you, the temple experience starts with bowing to these two statues out in front called, uh, the Neo, which are the heavenly Kings. And the bowing both shows reverence and also allows the heavenly kings to scare off any evil spirits that are connected to you. So once you're de-ghosted by their uh, vicious glares, 
you walk inside, then you ring uh, a clapper into a huge courtyard bell, and that announces your presence. You go over to a um, to like a, a constantly refilling pool. You take a dipper, you wash your mouth out and wash your hands. Now you're clean, so you can begin the prayers. Then you uh, go over to so there's uh, two shrines in each temple. There's a shrine to uh, whichever Buddhist deity the uh, temple is based on. And then there's a separate shrine to uh, Kobodaishi. So at the main shrine, you say you're, you go through a set series of seven prayers. And you also offer uh, coins, uh, name slip with your name written down. Uh, and you put those in a box by the, by the shrine. You go, you say the prayers, then you turn around, go to the Daishi shrine, say the prayers, and then it ends when you go to the stamp office and you're carrying this book that's basically a spiritual passport. Mm -hmm. And at each stamp office, you pay 300 yen and they dip a pen in ink and draw a calligraphy, like yeah. hand draw it, of the temple's name. And then they put three red stamps. Yep. I saw like in some of your pictures, like the calligraphy that the the stamp people do. It's not like they're just doing a stamp. It's pretty impressive. Like you know, you should talk about that because that was really cool. It's beautiful and like it's these you know swoops and lines and whirls. And the the most amazing thing is that each one you can really tell what was going on with the person who. Uh, did the stamp because like if I got there and there was a load of, so most, most people who do the pilgrimage are doing it on a bus tour, which means they roll in on this air conditioned bus. Everyone cheaters. gets out. They're, cheaters. Yeah, cheaters. Very smart cheaters. Uh, <laughs> Cause walking wasn't a picnic. Yeah. Um, but then they, they have their stamps and their prayer scrolls. And so there's this long line that basically becomes an industrialized calligraphy, uh, what do you call it, uh, calligraphy uh, production line. And so some of my stamps, you know, there's clearly rushed, not enough ink, and it's just like scratched out because it's like, ugh, another one, bam, 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 you're done. Yeah. And I'm like, but I'm special. And uh, <laughs> then the other ones where, you know, I come in alone the guy or woman will take their time and it's just, you're watching artwork be made. Yeah. Yeah. I saw you that. Know? I saw that in your picture. Um, you're, you're going through four regions though. I mean, I guess you kind of talked this about this before there's, I mean, the pilgrimage is four regions or stages and uh, you, you had already mentioned that. Um, but they also are tied to parts of the Island. Do you, can you explain that? Yeah. So Shikoku, uh, means four region. And there's four regions on Shikoku, but each region for the pilgrimage is also tied to a level of spiritual growth. So Tokushima, where all of the first, I think, uh, 25 temples are, uh, is the land of awakening faith. After that, you go through the longest and the hardest uh, section, which is by the Pacific Ocean, and that's called Kochi, which is the land of ascetic training. Uh, followed by Ihime. Is that the prettiest? Uh, Ihime and Kochi are both gorgeous. Mm, okay. Uh, Ko Kochi's beautiful because it's by the water, and Ihime is, I think, some of the most beautiful mountains. 
Um, so Ahime is the land of enlightenment, and then Kagawa uh, is the land of Nirvana. But after you finish Kagawa, you circle all the way back to Temple One to remind you that your spiritual pilgrimage is ongoing. That's pretty cool, actually. And this route is 750 miles, right? Yep. Wow, that's legit. And, you know, here's the other thing I don't think the listeners can appreciate without having, you know, seen some of the pictures in your book. Which you can buy on Amazon, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. Fighting monks and burning mountains, misadventures on a Buddhist pilgrimage. Yeah, but you're wearing traditional clothing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. is, yeah. is that required or can you just throw on a ball cap? You know, you can throw on a ball cap. I don't think anyone's going to, uh, I don't think anyone's going to, you know, fault you for it. But I highly recommend throwing on the throwing on the hat, throwing on the vests, carrying the staff, because uh, one of the things that was sort of a challenge for me, but also I think one of the best decisions I made was the fact that I don't speak Japanese. The prayers don't really mean that much to me. I mean, I was reciting them, but that was it. You know, I, I did that in. It's the same as when I was going to temple. I'm reciting these Hebrew prayers, but it's not like I know what the prayers are saying. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I devoted myself to following the rituals and wearing the hat and wearing the vest. And I feel like by, even if you don't fully buy into it, by investing yourself in the spiritual journey, you actually can get a lot out of it. And so I recommend buying the clothing because it also signals to everyone around you that you're not just, you know, wandering. You're on the journey and on the path. Yeah, yeah, I respect that. I mean, the hat and the clothing, though, how how comfortable was it? Because it doesn't look nearly as comfortable as your kind of typical hiking attire, right? Uh, I didn't mind it. Yeah, uh, the okay. vest is, you know, it's just a thin vest and the uh, the hat does work to keep the sun off of you. Yeah, well, Burning Mountain. I mean, We're going to talk about yeah, Burning Mountain. Exactly. I, I know how miserable <laughs> that was for you. Uh, did, uh, although, be sure you tie your hat because the wind will carry it off like a kite. Oh, okay. I got garroted a couple of times before I tied it tighter because the wind would just pick up and then just snap it against my neck. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Did you take any time off? like, uh, Or did you just do all this in one shot? Did you have any d- zero days, as they call them? No. No, I didn't take zero. zero days. Wow. Yeah, zero, zero days. Um, I think part of that was my feet were hurting so bad that I just wanted, part of me just wanted to get it done so I could throw those shoes away. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I was to do it again, I think I would have built in a couple more zeros. Okay. And you camped in a tent most mm-hmm. of the time, like all the time. Well, it sounds like you had a few nights where you were with other people, but um, what what is typical? Do most people camp in tents? Do most people not and kind of stay i think there's like kind of little mom and pop establishments that rent rooms and provide meals is that is that more typical yeah the typical way to do it is to go through real cons which are like you said just little mom and pop inns uh you come in at the end of your day i think there's like a set time that you have to show up and then they serve dinner and then breakfast the next day and then you're off um, you're provided a little room with a uh, little futon. Um, camping is pretty regular. I mean, I don't think anyone ever looked weird at me for doing it. Hmm. Um, there's also uh, 
places called rest huts that are just community maintained, uh, sort of covered shelters. They're not really closed shelters, but it's, you know, a bench, a bench you can lay down on or a little area in the center that you can set up a tent. It's got a roof over it. So you're not camping in the rain. Okay. And those are pretty all over. And some of them, the community's nice enough to leave a cooler for you with like a soda or uh, some iced coffee, which is really amazing out there. The iced coffee. Interesting. Uh, so it's, well, it's better than McDonald's is what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like so many things, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. So I'm curious about the, the the options for overnight. You you camped you camp most of the time, is that correct? Yes, I camp most of the time. What what's the expense like on the uh, the kind of the, the the rental the mom and pop rental rooms? Like, is it pretty reasonable, or can you run out of cash fast? Staying I think there? you can run out of cash. I don't. It happens so rarely that I don't really remember the cost, but I think it's somewhere around like 40, 50 bucks. Okay. If I was yeah. going to guess, um, might be a little more now, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's reasonable. And if you want to hike and sleep in comfort, um, it's a good way to, you know, ma- it's a good way to maintain the economy of Shikoku. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, Camino is similar, right? A lot of people live off of, uh, the pilgrims, uh, you know, in terms of providing services, not unlike the Appalachian trail too. So, mm. um, if someone wants to follow your route, when is the, uh, when's the best time to go? Would you say, I mean, you, you were there in August. It sounded like it was brutally hot. Uh, yeah. is, is there Don't another time? Don't go in the summer. Oh, Don't really? go in the summer if you have any ability not to. Mm. Um, if you do go in the summer, try to start in June. Okay. Uh, yeah, fall, you can do it, uh, year round. Of course, um, you know, it's not like it's not it, it. The route's well marked and it's not as though you're going to, you know, if you get caught in a snowstorm, you're going to get lost. But, yeah, fall and spring are the two times that are the most um, that most people go. I think the spring you're going to be dealing with uh, maybe a bit more bugs. And in the fall, you might be dealing with a bit more rain. So you can get snow on this trip. I mean, if you do it in the winter, yeah. Wow. Okay. I, I didn't see any snow. You know, at 2,000 feet, I would have never seen that coming, but uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, don't quote me on it. I don't think it's too, I don't think the snowfall is that intense on Shikoku, but yeah, I mean, J- Japan gets snow. I yeah, mean, yeah. That's why they had the Winter Olympics there. Yeah, no, no. I, I mean, I, I was aware of that, but I, I just thought at 2,000 feet, it seemed too low, but, or you said 3,000 at parts, but. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the book, you write about some of the challenges of your pil- pilgrimage. Um, we, we have talked about the heat. I know Burning Mountain was pretty brutal. I know there were times that you couldn't get food. Um, I know the language was a problem. You had some foot pain. You had a leg infection. What, what, <laughs> what was the hardest part? Uh, I mean, I would say physically Burning Mountain was simply the hardest part. Uh, that was, it was basically... I, I was still getting used to hiking. I didn't know where to find food. Like I still have no idea why it was so hard for me. So basically I decided to hike, uh, I think 12 to 18 miles up and up two mountains, both of which are around 2,700. Uh, and I was, I didn't have enough water. 
it was a ridiculously hot day and I was just collapsing from dehydration like every 50 steps. It, like I think we should call out to the listeners too, um, Paul, that this was early in the hike, right? Burning Mountain came up pretty quickly, didn't it? Burning Mountain is day three. Okay. And, pretty, uh, that's pretty brutal. You know, it, it's funny. Um, later on, it's not even the tallest mountain, but later on I would be talking to some locals and they would all, you know, in their in broken English, they'd be like, did you hike Burning Mountain? And um, and I'd say yes. And they'd all make this same wincing face and just go, oof. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was, you know, I was collapsing from dehydration. I didn't know when it was going to end. I honestly was getting real concerned I was going to pass out and have to be evacuated. Because another thing about that year, and maybe this is just me, but the heat and the humidity were brutal, like to the point where I was drinking, I think, about two liters of water per hour, every hour, and I did not pee once while the sun was up for like 10 days. Wow. Like it was all just leaking out of me the second I put it in. So yeah, I was just collapsing. But that was also the day where I said, you know what? I'm scared. I'm thinking of quitting, but I am going to continue. Like I, I will have to collapse and be evacuated, but I am going to continue hiking this because this is what I said I would do. This is what I've dedicated myself to doing and I made it. And after that, nothing I've ever done in my life physically has been as difficult as that day. Yeah. Anybody that's done a long distance hike can appreciate what you went through there. I mean, you, you do, you always go through those moments, but Mm -hmm. what was the hardest part was burning mountain? Probably your hardest part? I mean, I think emotionally the hardest parts were the leg infection because I have a a thing about uh, disease in that I don't like having it. And so I was like both having a panic attack and in total denial as I look down at, you know, this redness growing on my leg from when I fell. And I just keep being like, no, it's just sunburn, man. You know, you know how sunburn makes your legs swell sometimes yeah, yeah. and leak, you know, sunburn. We've all had it. <laughs> I don't know about leak, but yeah, yeah. like the red part. <laughs> do, you, do you want to talk about how the leg infection happened? Because was that when you were like in the temple and you were, that wasn't when you were fighting a monk, was it? No, that was a couple of days before. So the leg infection happened because I was at this really beautiful temple, um, up up in the mountains just or in a forest gorgeous place and i so each temple kind of has this veranda platform around it and from the platform i wanted to go to this raised uh raised earth platform with a you know that was bordered by a rock wall and instead of walking down the stairs and then walking around and walking up the stairs they were the same height And I figured, like, it's just two feet. I'll just jump from one to the other. And, you know, in midair, I realized that Indiana Jones lied to me and ancient temples are not good leaping platforms. (laughs) The movie should have told you that. I know. (laughs) And so I, like, the, the board snaps and I fall against the rock wall and cut my leg. Not bad, but I'm bleeding. And then, you know, I'm on the ground like, ah, shit, I'm bleeding. 
And then I look over and I'm like, ah, shit, I don't know how much ancient temples cost. So I'm like, you know, coward that I am. It can't be inexpensive. No, but years later, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, you know what? That temple might be 1500 years old. That wood cannot be more than 10 years old. Yeah. yeah. Like it's in a forest. Of course it's rotting. But, you know, at the time I'm just like, oh, shit. So I, you know, like basically try to go through the prayers as fast as I can, get my stamp and leave. An old man walks up to me and is like concerned about my leg. And I'm just like, it's fine because I don't want to be around the crime scene very long. (laughs) And this and this guy sends another guy over who speaks a little more English. And he's like, look, this old man has medicine for you. And I'm like, no, that's cool. I'm a coward. And then I just ran off through the woods. And of course, because karma works, I got a leg infection. Yeah. You don't don't think that medicine was sake, do you? Oh God, I wish it was. (laughs) (laughs) Now you you ended up in a hospital though, didn't you? On that whole, that whole uh, leg infection? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, so I spent three days panicking. Uh, again, I'm an idiot. I know that. So I walk, so I'm so panicked, I miss the turn going to a temple. So I end up walking up the exit. This, the first white person that I've seen in 30 days is walking down. I look up, the first thing I say to her is, holy shit, a white woman. Do you speak English? And she says, yeah. And then the second thing I say to her is, does this look infected to you? And she looks at it and goes, yeah, yeah, you should go to a hospital. And I'm like, okay, yeah, so it's not sunburn. Okay, crazy. And uh, yeah, then, you know, I'm raised in America, which means I'm broken when it comes to medical care. So I'm just (laughs) like, oh, God, this is, well, that's the end of the pilgrimage. You you were fearing like a $600 bill is what you're saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it turned out to be what, like 50 bucks? I think it was like 37 or 67. <laughs> yeah. Just, just like, like it should cost Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for basic healthcare. So they got you back in shape, but didn't you like go some periods of time where you were having trouble finding food? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. The first two or three weeks, like I think I lost two pounds a day. Um, I just, I, I have no idea why I would like go into a town and look around, but because I was kind of on a schedule and because I don't speak Japanese or can't, and can't read it, I couldn't find a grocery store. Mm. So like the grocery store that I had to visit would be, have to be like super prominent. And a lot of the shops are just like snack shops, you know, like uh, gas stations in Japan, at least on Shikoku don't have like a food mart attached to them. They're just gas stations. Yeah. Right. And so like dinner some nights, especially in the beginning, was like dried squid and two bananas. Oh, that does not sound good. Oh, man. Actually, dried squid's pretty good. I'm not going to lie. Really? But uh, How much weight did you lose? Not a lot lose? of fat in it. Uh, God, what, 30 pounds, I think? 20, okay. I think it was something like 28 to 30 pounds yeah. in the first two weeks because, yeah, I think I started around 195 and I was somewhere around like 165 or something. Yeah, plus you're exercising all the time too, so you know. Oh yeah, it makes sense. Was 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 it hard to find water on the hike? Water was not hard to find. Uh, each, every temple had a spigot, 
Um, so except for like Burning Mountain, which I think I just was not prepared for. Um, you know, there uh, you could go into most shops and they would have a sink for you. Um, so water wasn't really an issue, so which you, is you, why you, I was able to drink so much of it. Yeah, so you obviously didn't have to carry much water on the hike, right? No, I, I carried uh, three water bottles, and by the end of it, I'd lost one. But <laughs> you know, two water bottles were fine. Gotcha. Did you, did you ever get lost when you were hiking? I mean, I never got lost in the forest, thankfully, but I got lost in cities all the time. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Cause, That's the cause opposite just, of what I would expect. Yeah, no. You'd think, but I had a map book. And, you know, so I was basically just trying to randoneer my way through a city. Uh, but once you're in the forest, there's like basically one trail. Okay. And uh, they have these little uh, kanji hanging from trees with like red kanji on them. And so that's how you know you're going the right way in a forest. Okay. Did, I mean, were you alone most of the time, or did you run into people uh, frequent, frequently but, you know, between the temples? Um, I was alone most of the time. Interesting. Like, yeah. I mean, you know how it is on a trail. It's the, it's, you're more likely to meet people going the opposite direction than mm-hmm. people going the same direction because we're all spaced out and moving at about the same rate. Yeah, right. So yeah, I'd run into, I ran into a couple of people, you know, in a rest hut and I'd hike with them for some of the day or I'd meet, I'd run into them at night, uh, because there's, uh, free lodging, uh, for walking pilgrims, some, on uh, some places called Zen Cognado. And so, you know, you'd meet them at night cause we'd all be staying at the same free lodging. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, other than, you know, it's when both of you have limited uh, conversational ability, it's, you know, you run out of conversation. <laughs> Pretty quickly, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you said in your book there's only about 300 people the year you did it that finished it, correct? I mean, I don't know how many people finished it. Uh, I think that, um, yeah, I, I have no idea how many people that year finished it. Although that the year that I did it, I think only, I think it broke down to about a hundred people still actually walked the trail, okay. and out of those, uh, it's a dozen Westerners. Yeah, I was I was curious about that. I mean, did, how how many Americans did you see? I, I think I saw one American ever, huh. and uh, she was just at. She was just like doing a three temple tour as part of a vacation. Okay. Like the the woman who helped me with my leg was uh, Australian German, hmm. and other than that, I never ran into another Westerner. So who are most of the people hiking? Like where are they from? Japan. Oh, they're mostly from Japan. Okay. So even though yeah. the majority the Japanese don't necessarily know the, and this is 2010, but know the pilgrimage uh still most of the people are are from japan oh yeah yeah because yeah. i mean you know if you leave a job or you get out of college it's you know it's a close by thing to do yeah okay that makes sense you know the same way the appalachian trail is on the east coast yeah yeah that makes sense so i gotta ask you paul about taylor because i know he was a childhood best friend and mm, yeah um, it's uh his name is actually jamie i just I couldn't get his permission, oh, you know. Name. I got gotcha. you. 
So, yeah. I mean, so he commits suicide while you're hiking, mm-hmm. and I know it affected you immensely during the hike. I'm very curious, though, with all the religious aspects of the journey, um, how you incorporated sort of your religious experience there with, you know, trying to um, reconcile your your life with Taylor, because it sounded like he was pretty important in your life. Yeah, I mean, Taylor, uh, Jamie was my... Uh, he was like my childhood best friend for most of my childhood, like up from elementary school, like first grade to basically just out of high school. Uh, and then we went to different colleges and kind of grew apart. You know, went to different high schools, went to different colleges. We kind of grew apart. Um, but we recently reconnected because uh, he was going through some, you know, personal challenges and I, see him every Christmas at his uh, dad's holiday party. Um, And yeah, his suicide really shook me in uh, ways that it took getting off of the pilgrimage to, uh, to really fully process. But at the time it was just such a shock and just the, it was the first time I'd really felt grief in that way. Uh, to lose someone so young and so close to me. Um, So, yeah, it was a... I I sort of had to do something that is very Buddhist, which is be in the moment as I completed the pilgrimage because I was both processing grief and thinking about all of these memories we had that I hadn't thought of in a long time and just the unfairness of his death. But I was also still on this religious journey, and I had to sort of incorporate all of that into being in the moment, being in the moment of grief, being in the moment of the pilgrimage, being in the moment of seeing all of this beauty on this truly once-in-a-lifetime hike. And I, uh, I'd... Like, like I said earlier, um, at the start, the prayers, I was just reciting prayers. You know, I was reciting words phonetically in another language. But one of the first spiritual moments of spiritual growth I had on the pilgrimage was saying like, okay, you know what? I don't know what I'm saying with these prayers, but I'm going to say them for somebody. So each time I prayed, I would keep someone in mind who I wanted something good to happen and all the best for. And, you know, Jamie was one of those people early on. And so after he died, I said a couple more prayers for him, just, you know, to, for his memory and to try to do, I don't know, try to put something good into the world when I really had no power to do anything else. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, as well as anybody, right. You go through a lot of emotions, on a long distance hike, you got a lot of time to think, you got a lot of time to reflect on life. Um, yeah. You sounded kind of down to be honest with you in your book. I mean, obviously you were down. Um, I'm just yeah. curious, like, was that the lowest moment on your, on your through hike when, when that happened? I think, yeah. I mean, and it came after one of the better moments because the other low moment was before I went to the hospital where I'm thinking like, okay, because you didn't take the stairs 
like this thing that you saved up for and that you put all this effort into and that has been, you know, a very mixed bag that you were hoping would get better uh, is done. Now you go home and people say, how was it? And you say it was fine until I didn't take the stairs. And then that's that, you know, that's that's your big journey before going back to work forever. And then, you know, going to the hospital and being like, oh, yeah, no, just take these pills and they're reasonably priced. And you're like, oh, awesome. Cool. Like birds are singing. Like I'm expecting some of some cartoon birds to like hop on my shoulder. And then, you know, I get I check my email from someone else's phone and it's like, hey, you know, you're the first tragic death of your life has just happened. Yeah. And that yeah, that was that was a rough one. Yeah, through hiking's a roller coaster, right? Long distance hikes, really man. You, you got ups and downs. I mean, and the downs can be brutal, and the ups can be wonderful. I mean, on that topic, yeah. on that topic, you want to talk about like maybe some great experiences, maybe when you laugh the hardest on your hike. I mean, I think the time I laughed the hardest on the hike was somewhere during the land of ascetic training, because, uh, like I said, my shoes didn't fit. It was awful um but i and so like every three times a day i would have to you know snip growing blisters and like rebandage and i took my shoes off this one night and i just started laughing so hard because there was so much cloth and material on my feet it looked like i was preparing them for egyptian burial <laughs> that's funny like i, I looked like i mummified them yeah and I... I got a good laugh actually out of when you fought the monk and that's the title of your book. So you gotta, you gotta talk about fighting the monk at dusk, right? Like with the sun going down, that was, that was awesome. That uh, the high point, one of the high points of my life to this day, uh, top five for sure. And like, I've, I've joked to my wife, like you have to make sure I'm a really beloved husband and father to put that on my tombstone. Cause otherwise <laughs> fought a priest on a mountaintop is going yeah. there. Yeah. That, that doesn't sound like it's going to send you to the, uh, the Everland there fighting. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, unless he kicked again, your ass, if he kicked your ass, maybe, but not, not if you oof, beat him. Definite draw. Um, so again, this is in my book, fighting monks and burning mountains, misadventures on a Buddhist pilgrimage available in ebook, audiobook, and print on Amazon. So the priest fight happened because I got to this temple, uh, you know, a mountaintop temple, and I'm saying the prayers, and the priest, who's really cool and speaks some English, uh, turns to me after I finish reciting them, because he's there signing the stamp books, and he said, you know, you prayed very, you said the words very well, and, you know, I'm like, oh, thank you, and in my mind, I'm like, are you just being polite? Because it literally takes me three tries to say Seattle to a way that people understand <laughs> wait, it. Wait, how do the Japanese say Seattle? Uh, they go, Shatteru. <laughs> and I'd be like, Seattle. And they'd be like, Shatteru. And I'd be like, Seattle. And then they'd say, Shatteru. And then I'd say, and then I'd swing an imaginary bat and say, Ichiro Suzuki. And they go, oh, Ichiro Suzuki, Shatteru Merina. And I'm like, yeah. And then we had no other conversation. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, but anyway, so I say the prayers. He gives me a compliment, and I'm just like, oh, thank you, thank you. And then he says, uh, why are your arms so big? And, uh, you know, because I don't know how to say in Japanese, I can't find any of your grocery stores. Because 
at this point, like I'm literally skin and muscle and nothing else. Mm. I look like Bane with cancer. And uh, so he goes, so I say, you know, oh, I do uh, Kyokushin karate. And he says, oh, I do Gojiru, which is Kyokushin sister style. I'm just like, oh, that's awesome. He's like, yeah, black belt. And so we talk a little bit and then he leads me to this basement room where walking pilgrims can stay. So I walk back out to the courtyard and because every night I'm practicing for my black belt. When I get back to Seattle, I take my black belt test. So I say, hey, can I practice Kyokushin in your courtyard? And he says, yes. And then his wife comes out of the, uh, of, you know, the priest's quarters carrying their baby. And it was so funny because she opens the door and these two German shepherds, like full size dogs, bigger than any dog I've seen on Shikoku, just run out and start tearing ass around this temple courtyard and then jump up and drink out of the sacred water that we all wash our mouths out of. No. Okay. Um, and so then she comes up and, uh, she comes up and, you know, he says, uh, you know, he's like, yeah, he's a walking pilgrim. And she asks, you know, Temple 12. And I nod. And she goes, Oof. Uh, and then says, and then he's like, oh, Kyokushin, brown belt. And she goes, oh, Shotokan, green belt. And I turned to him. I was like, oh, I, I thought he's and Shotokan's a much softer martial arts style. It doesn't allow contact. And Kyokushin is bare-fisted fighting basically okay big, like big difference D- yeah completely yeah. different our turn- yeah our, our tournaments are your only protections a mouth guard and a cup and yeah bare-fisted fighting and so uh, i say oh i thought you did kyokushin and he goes no now i do shotokan with my wife <laughs> and i look at him and he looks at me and i just raise my fists and say kumate which means fight and he says Kumate. So he takes off his priest gear. I take off my pilgrim gear. We square up. And on this mountaintop temple, as dusk falls, we have a full-on, full-contact karate match for like 15, 20 minutes. And I'm just, yeah, I'm just like, while it's happening, I'm like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. It's a good thing the wife didn't jump in, man. Two on one. You could have been in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, who knows what that baby knew, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's awesome. So um, so after the hike, you, you return to Seattle. And uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned in the book that you're kind of depressed after your hike. I totally get it. I know the, I know the like, post-long-distance hike depression that happens. Um, how'd you overcome yeah. it? Um, I mean... Depression, honestly, is something I've just lived with. But the post-hike depression. Um, so I think I'll just start by saying one of the points of my book, and this is for anyone who's gone on a hike or anyone who's thinking about going on a through hike, is that you can go on an amazing adventure. Like the Shikoku pilgrimage was one of the most incredible things I've ever done in my life. You know, there's a lot that we haven't talked about that's in the book um, that, you know, was life changing. But I got back and it it wasn't the full epiphany I was looking for because I went, you know, trying to find like the meaning of my life and 
what I should do. Yeah, sure. And I got back and I just didn't know still, you know, no one, the, no wizened Japanese man walked out of the woods, gave me a sword and was like, you, you're a, I don't know, a warrior now. And it's like, oh, neat. I knew it. A ninja? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, come join our ninja clan. Like, cool, cool. The plan worked out. Yeah. You know, I got back and I'm back to work. I know I've changed, but I don't know how. And, you know, as, as you know, and as any through hiker knows, mostly your friends are going to ask how the hike was that first week you're back when you are still processing it. Yeah. And no one asks three, you know, months to six months later when you're like, Oh, I think I finally know what that hike was about. Yeah. You know? And so it felt like everyone was like, how was the, how was the, your, you know, Japan trip? And I was like, Oh, it was great. You know, I, fought a priest on a mountaintop and I got charged by a boar and I hid out from guards in a toilet stall all night. And there was a lot of walking and my shoes didn't fit. And they were like, yeah, wow. Wow. You, yeah. Cool vacation, man. And then everyone just moves on yeah. and you're like trying to process. And so I think a lot of the depression was just trying to go back to work and being like, I don't like this job. I've never liked this job and I'm never going to like doing this stuff. I need to leave. And so making the decision to stop trying to fit into a hole that I was never going to fit into lifted a lot of the depression. You know, I, I uh, went off and tried to do stuff that never made me as much money, never provided as much security, but I was happier. You know, I didn't wake up sighing every day because I decided I'm going to try to live a life by my own rules rather than, you know, just trying to fit in somewhere. Yeah. It's a great playbook. I mean, it's hard to have that much stimulus and then to go back into a cube, right? Like working for, oh, you were with, awesome. the, you were with a software company, right? If I yeah, read your yeah, book. I was, like, okay. I was an office manager and I realized one day, like everything I've done for the past three years could be erased by a magnet. <laughs> So, Paul, Paul, I got to ask you, you're making me think of uh, the Office Space uh, show here for a minute with the software analogy. But, um, yeah. I mean, have you ever thought about the Camino? Because it, it's, it's like a similar religious journey. I mean, have you have you considered that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've kind of, con I've considered it, but I'm much less catholic than i am buddhist okay that's fair. so it kind of didn't have that initial draw for me because yeah, i got you yeah um but i actually uh called up my my aunt had done it and i called up my mom and i was like you know we should well you know we both have this freedom uh my mom you know can kind of pick her schedule at this point i was like we should walk the camino you know, let's, let's start planning. Let's, let's go walk the Camino. I think it'll be a great father, mom trip or, a you know, sorry, mother, son trip. And, uh, and then this virus came out. Of, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, that, that would end that quickly. It does sound like, yeah. it does sound like there's some similarities though, between the, the way you, you know, go through the journey, right. Um, you know, whether you're, regardless of what your religious faith is, right. There's some, I think, similar experiences that you have on the, on the trip, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I honestly believe that a spiritual journey is more about 
what you are putting into it than simply like what is what the uh, what the rituals or the prayers are. You know, it's it's kind of like this Buddhist idea of you know a finger pointing to the moon. And what any Buddhist teacher is trying to show you is the moon. It's like look at the moon. That's the truth. But a lot of people are only looking at the finger because they're like, oh my God, that finger knows so much. Look at it. It's pointing to the moon. That we gotta we gotta see what more that finger knows. And it's like, no, no, no. The the finger's only there to show you, to make you look up. And so whatever pilgrimage you're going on, whether it's the Camino, whether it's the uh, Shikoku, whether it's um, the Baal Shem Tov one in the Ukraine, uh, I feel like it's really about keeping your eyes open to what those rituals and what the journey is trying to show you, rather than simply focusing on each step as a obligation. If that makes sense. No, it does. I mean, at the end of the day, it's your journey, right? I mean, uh, yeah. it doesn't really matter what your faith is. It's your journey. It's your experience. It's your life. I mean, it's how you associate that with, you know, where you are in, in that time. Um, so I, I totally get what you're saying. Are you, um, I mean, you wrote a book. Are you, are, you, are you looking at doing any other books, any other long-distance hikes that we haven't talked about? You did the... Colorado Trail, the Pacific Crest. Yeah, I'm, uh, so once, you know, it's safe to travel, I would like to take a very long, uh, long overdue honeymoon with my wife to either go to Patagonia and do the Torres del Paine Oh, that'd hike, be awesome. That'd the be Q cool. route. It's yeah, on my list. Or Annapurna. Yeah. The Annapurna trek, all, the circuit also just sounds incredible. That's Nepal, right, for the listeners? Yep. Yeah, that's in Nepal. Um, yeah, one of my one of my PCT friends is signed up to do it, and I'm so envious. Um, so yeah, the book wise, I'm working on two. Um, one is about well, so we said we'd get into it. So trigger warning for anyone listening to anyone listening. Some sad stuff happened to me uh, in 2015. My girlfriend killed herself. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, it was, she was like, we dated for a year and then I think I'd spent about a year and a half, like, you know, being best friends and still, you know, being very mostly on sometimes off, but finally, you know, realizing, Oh, you know what? We were supposed to be together. Let's, let's give this a real try again. And then 11 days later, uh, she just uh, be. She had a lot of chronic pain and just didn't want to live with it anymore. Wow. Um, and so that kind of set me off on this journey of moving to Denver, where I started working in a pot shop and a bunch of crazy adventures happened out there. And then <laughs> another tragic suicide uh, knocked me off course again. And then I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. Wow. And got back and crazily enough so the the date that um that my girlfriend meredith killed herself was october 23rd of 2015 and two years later october 23rd of 2017 uh was my first date with my now wife oh wow okay because congratulations thank you 
but that's kind of the journey, you know, it was Denver and then this, that's going to be the first book. And then the second book is kind of the Pacific crest trail and coming back and being not fully healed up enough because I, I mean, I don't know what you've gone through, but a long hike can do a lot, but it can't fix everything. But coming back from the Pacific Crest Trail, having finished it, I was still filled with enough, you know, positive energy and enough feeling of awe and happiness and wonder that on October 23rd, I didn't want to just stay at home and be sad. So I went and had a friendly beer with an old comedy friend, and that ended up being our first date. Yeah, I mean, I think a long-distance hike, Paul, to your point, it gives you a chance to think a lot, and it lets you uh, kind of get to know yourself and where you are at that time. I think that, yeah. the, 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 that's the healing aspect of it. But um, I feel like people go in – so, like, this is something I wrote about in my book, Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains. Please buy it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, on these journeys, you – I think a lot of people go into it expecting like, oh, you know, this is going to be my narrative arc where at the end of it, I have this epiphany that changes my life. Doesn't work that way. Does not work that way, does it? No, like uh, something I say in the book and that I think everyone should take into their lives is don't define the journey while you're still on it. Yeah. Because if you, if you, if, if your only view of your journey is this is either what it's supposed to be or isn't what it's supposed to be, you're missing what it is. And a lot of the clues and a lot of the lessons and a lot of the answers that you can discover about yourself and about your life are all there. But it's up to you to keep your mind and your eyes open enough to put them together at the end. Yeah, agreed. And yeah, so like on Shikoku, you know, I... Something that, you know, I I said about coming back. It's like it wasn't the journey I thought it would be. And it I don't want people to get discouraged, you know, if they go off on a long hike and it's the answers aren't what they thought they'd be. Um but yeah, if you if you keep your eyes open, you see at the end like what it all was for. And yeah. yeah. I mean, so Paul, to go back to the Shikoku pilgrimage for a second, um I mean you did it 10 years ago, almost 11. Um, mm-hmm. Are there any guidebooks or websites that you would recommend if somebody is you know, super fired up about your book or doing the pilgrimages? Um, I, the first place to start and the best place is Shikoku Henro Trail, uh, David Turkington's website. Uh, that will give you links to um, the... <clears throat> to the official map book for purchase that gives you links to the temple guidebook, which I also recommend, uh, cause that gives you background into each temple you're visiting. Um, the rest of the stuff you can pick up at temple one, if you go. Um, and as I never went on the Facebook page much because you know, the Facebook page was there after I got back, but, uh, try the Facebook page. I, I, I haven't been on Facebook for years now, but there's, that's always a good resource. And they probably know a lot more about hiking the pilgrimage in 2020 than I know about, you know, hiking the pilgrimage a decade ago. Um, but 
I do recommend try to do what I did uh, and detach from your computer. Try to leave your, you know, your iPhone somewhere else or your smartphone and really just go with a map and a journal and write down what you see and what you think. It's, it's invaluable. Yeah. I'm so glad I kept a journal in my 94 hike, honestly. I, I still look at it all the time. Um, I think yeah. that, that might be one of the best tips you could ever give somebody that's going on a long-distance hike. It's, it's great to look back on your experiences. Oh, yeah. like I, One of the biggest regrets in my life is when I spent a year teaching English in South Korea, I didn't keep a journal. Like I started one, and my friend told me to do it, and I just kind of dropped off on it because mm. keeping a journal you know, is annoying. But, yeah, one of my biggest regrets because – you forget so much of the journey, and it's uh, it's just such a good way to bring it back into such sharp focus. Yeah, agreed. I mean, social media gives you a way to kind of uh, track your journey to some degree that we didn't have, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But, um, hey, so ha- is there a way they can follow you on social media? Do you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> I am – on uh, Instagram at Barack Outdoors, B as in boy, A-R-A-C-H, Outdoors. Uh, if you follow me there, you can see my hiking photos. And I've also been posting ev- every other day 10 photos from one day of the Shikoku pilgrimage. Okay. So you'll be able to see uh, in much more detail what it looked like every day. Awesome. And, and uh, you mentioned it a few times. You want to... One more time on your book? Sure. Thank you. Um, So my book is Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, Misadventures on a Buddhist Pilgrimage. It's available on Amazon in ebook, audiobook, and print. Yeah, kind of cool. Really cool to talk to you about this uh, trip because I don't think it's well known. Um, I'd love kind of featuring some of these unique experiences outside of the United States uh, because so much talk about the Appalachian Trail and the continental divide and pacific crest so it's it's great to get another in the mix um yeah and uh another thing that we haven't touched on uh, about the pilgrimage is that unlike you know the at the ct the pct uh there is a fascinating history and culture and legends on the shikoku pilgrimage that i also touch on in my book everything from you know the uh, the yokai, the little uh, the little monsters of legend that are around Shikoku. There's legends of famous samurai and uh, temple intrigue and ancient curses and vengeful ghosts. So it's just a really fascinating place that I also cover in the book. Yeah, you hit that well. I'll give that to you all day long. Any um, any any final thoughts? I just I, the most important thing the listeners could take away about the Shikoku pilgrimage. I think the most important thing to take away, besides, please don't get into any karate matches on mountaintops <laughs> with, with the monk. It, yeah, it has to be very consensual and come up naturally. Um, but it is a journey of a lifetime, and it is something that to the best that you can do, like prepare for it, read up on it and just really take in every day as it is, because it is a truly beautiful place. Yeah. Like there was, uh, 
there were moments where, you know, the sun would be setting over a recently overturned rice fields and it would just be just the sun would just be golden and glittering off of these red dragonflies just flying everywhere. And it's a lot of Shikoku is modernized. A lot of Shikoku is just, you know, you're staring out at, uh, at a farm with tractors and garbage piled up outside. But other times it's, it truly is just ancient Japan in the modern day. And it's amazing. Yeah. It's really cool. You had that experience. Well, Paul, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. I really appreciate uh, uh, you educating us about the Shikoku pilgrimage. Um, Look forward to your next book. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for having me on. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Into Backpacking Podcast. This is your host, Bird Shooter, wishing you the best for your travels on the trail. To subscribe to this show, visit iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And give us a thumbs up or a positive comment while you're there. You can also download shows directly from intobackpacking.com. Just click the podcast tab on the main menu. Music for this show was provided by Jerris under a Creative Commons license and is titled Hillbilly Anarchy. This show is a production of N2 Backpacking and is copyrighted by N2 Ventures, Inc. For more information on this podcast or to provide feedback or comments on this or future shows, please visit us at N2Backpacking.com. That's the letter N, the number two, backpacking.com.